Father, we have gathered together in this your house, which is to be called a house of prayer, to pray to ask the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all the heavens and the earth, to speak to us through the power of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just do that tonight, that you'd push aside all the hindrances. Lord, the things that we have may, uh, brought with us from work or maybe school, home, perhaps something that happened on the road, Lord, something from last week, maybe uh, years in the making, God, something that is interrupting that flow of the Spirit in our heart or our mind tonight. We pray that you would just put those things aside and speak to us as your church. We're delighted, Lord, that we can call on you and you answer. And so, Lord, please speak tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 4, and as you turn there, this is the turning point. And we'll get to some of those things here in a little bit. But this is the turning point in the book of Revelation up to this point in time. Uh, the Lord himself has been speaking. Uh, he's been communicating personally. Uh, he has spoken into our lives about who he is, what he is, uh, what lies ahead is now ahead of us. And so we're on the verge of turning the corner. And as we turn the corner, you would expect to find the Lord to speak to the issue of what now? He's just finished this long discourse, these seven churches representing the church age in its entirety from its infancy, its founding in the first century to its conclusion with the very last church, the church of Laodicea. The church of the very last days, the lukewarm church that we finished with last time we were together. And so from that point, the Lord is now going to begin to speak with the church beginning to fade away. And so he says, after these things, please circle that, underline it, highlight it, and ask yourself the simple question, after what things? Because it's in reference to something that's already will have come to pass. And that something is the church age. After these things, after the church of Sardis and Thyatira and Philadelphia, after the church of Laodicea, after these things, the age of grace concluding, the time of the church's influence on the face of the earth will come to an end one day. It's one of the reasons that I believe the church's time is now. We need to seize the moment. I don't know how much longer we have. I often get asked the question, well, do you think the Lord's coming back you know, this year, this week, next week, next year? I don't have the answer for that in a, in a specific way. But I can tell you this, if he's ever been close, he's closer still tonight. I, I have said for several years now, it's almost as if you can hear the horses warming up in heaven. They're getting ready. And after these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here. John is getting a preview of what lies ahead for those who are part of the after these things. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the apostle in a cave on the island of Patmos received a vision from the Lord. That vision from the Lord transported him into the heavenlies. And he saw what awaits every last one of us. Come up here, and I will show you the things which, notice this, circle it, underline it, must take place after this. And the this is after these things. So it is a very clear statement that these things are going to take place after the church age is over and after 
the things that are completed in the church age have come to the fullness of their fruition. And they must come to pass. So it's speaking of what we would call a foregone conclusion. The Lord in his infinite mind and infinite wisdom in his sovereign plans knows exactly when this after this is going to occur. He knows tonight when that time is. And when he decides that time is, it will happen. And so the next 16 chapters are going to describe the things that will happen after this. And they are varied, and they are many, and they are, if you were here tonight and do not know the Lord Jesus, absolutely terrifying. If you know the Lord Jesus, perfect love casts out all fear. For immediately I was in the spirit. Notice that he wasn't transported bodily. He was transported spiritually. His body was not yet redeemed, so it could not enter the glories of heaven, but his spirit, because of the blood of the Lamb, was absolutely righteous as you are in Christ, and I am in Christ. The righteousness you have, the righteousness put into your account, was put there by the perfect Lamb of God. And so thereby, you too, one day, can enter into glory. It's the beauty of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you're one of the God's children, you've said yes to Jesus, then you have sufficient righteousness because of Christ to enter the glories of heaven the nanosecond you take your last breath. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Glory in it. Glory in it, because when you leave this earth, you know where you're going. I always think about guys when I think about this passage because we're famous for telling people we know where we're going and then not asking direction. (laughs) In this case, fortunately, the directions are immutable. They were etched by Jesus and you're going to go straight there. There'll be no little detours off into purgatory or wherever. (laughs) Absent from the body and present with the Lord. And behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like Jasper. And Jasper, by the way, in this sense is clear. And I want you to know this is the first of the stones in the breastplate of the high priest. The second stone was like Sardis, ruby red. It is the last stone in the breastplate of the high priest perfect and yet red a white robe and yet his blood it's a picture of the lamb there was one who sat there like jasper a sword of stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance of an emerald you, you see, as you see this heavenly picture, for us it's kind of hard to, to grasp it. Because it's really, as John is transported there, he's transported in the Spirit, he's given a vision and he's seeing something that he's never seen before. He's witnessing something that you and I won't see until we get there. But it absolutely transported him into the glories of heaven. I want to remind you of a few things as we move on, because if you remember when we were in chapter 1, we got an outline uh, there in verse 19 of chapter 1. It's important to remember that now going forward, because if you remember that outline in chapter 1, verse 19, it says this, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And so when you look at those three things, what you have seen refers to the events that we covered when we were in chapter 1. It was about everything that John had seen in his lifetime. 
that part of the history of the church age. What is now is all of the church age in its entirety. So we are nearing the end, in a practical sense, of that period of time of what is now, chapters 2 and 3, the church age. And then chapters 4, all the way really to the end of the book of Revelation, include what is to come. Those things that will take place after the church age is over. And so as we think on those things, remember where you are in this timeline. Because the church at Philadelphia is gone, for the most part. The church at Laodicea, very much at work in our world today. And so what John is saying is there's going to come a point in time when the church age is going to be over with a capital O. And then these things are going to happen. And at the beginning of those things, he's transported to heaven for a glimpse of glory. And if what I believe is true, John represents you and I, all of the church that is alive on the earth right now today. He's a picture of those who were alive when that trumpet sounds. He is a picture, really, of the rapture of the church. And I want to spend a little bit of time tonight because I think it's important going forward. And before I begin to speak on this topic, this topic which can be, if you allow it to be, a divisive. And I not only don't want it to be divisive, I absolutely do want you to understand what we as Calvary Chapel believe to be true. And that is, prior to the coming of the Lord, that the church will be taken home. We will be raptured off of this earth and taken up to meet the Lord in the air. And I can't wait. But there are well-intentioned, Bible-believing Christians who believe otherwise. And I want to give those views tonight, and I want to set straight something for you. Nobody goes to heaven because of what they believe about the rapture of the church. Nobody. And so the reason I'm saying that is you may have people, maybe you have, like I do, my brother happens to be of the Reformed uh, theology. And that Reformed theology is the last group that we're going to cover here in a moment. They believe there will be no millennial reign of Christ. That we're in this church age and that the tribulations described in this book are going on even now. They represent the wars and all of the things that have gone on from the beginning of the church age until now. That the next event is the coming of the Lord. And here's why I, I think we need to be very careful with this particular doctrine, which I believe I will defend for you extremely well. And I believe that we can look at it and cling to it. If I'm wrong, we're wrong, and there is no rapture, then praise God because we are dumb about the things that are coming. Okay? We just don't know. And if they're wrong, they're going to be really happy because they're going to miss the tribulation. Okay? <laughs> but the bottom line is, for the believer, ultimately, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So I want to set the stage to not be divisive tonight, but I simply want to give you those three views and then the one non-view of what many people believe. Before we do that, let me give you the chief reason uh, that I believe that you can simply be here tonight and go, man, one day the trumpet's going to sound and we who are alive and remain are going to meet him in the air. It's going to happen instantaneously forever to be with the Lord and there are two things that I want to point you to. Number one, we must make a distinction between Israel and the church. Because if you combine the two, if you spiritualize the church and spiritualize Israel, it becomes a mishmash. You cannot look at the prophecies of Isaiah, the prophecies of Joel, the prophecies of Zechariah. You cannot look at the prophecies of Daniel, and you cannot separate out Israel and the church. And when you do that, you have to go to the second thing, which is a non-literal rendering of Scripture. 
If you simply literally render Scripture for what it says, unless you have a really good reason not to, and when the Lord says, look, I'm going to come and get you and snatch you away, and I'm going to meet you in the air, I think we can trust God on that. And so there are two things, the distinction between God's program for Israel and a program for his church and a consistent, literal interpretation of the Scriptures. So as people who believe in the rapture of the church, notice this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So he's talking about coming back from heaven with a specific group of people. To be absent from the body is to be. So that is the group that he's referring to, those that are already there. Notice what he says next. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain. What was John at this time? He was alive and he was remaining. That would be anyone who's alive and remaining at the time that this event occurs. Until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who were asleep. So anybody that's gone on before the Lord, they're already with Jesus. Very simple. For the Lord himself would descend, notice where from? From heaven. And he will do that with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Very interesting word. We'll get to that in a few moments. Together with them to meet them in the clouds with the Lord in the air. So notice where this meeting takes place. It is not on earth. It is in the heavens. That is very different than the second coming because the second coming takes place on the earth, not in the heavens. So there is a clear distinction here between this event and the second coming of the Lord. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So he's speaking to those who would be alive and remaining on the earth. He says, so these groups will then be merged into the body of Christ complete at that time. Those who have already gone on before, who are in heaven, those who are dead in Christ, those who are alive and remaining, boom, together. What do we call all those people? We've been studying them now for almost two months. We call them the church, amen? That's all believers of all times who have ever trusted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. Everybody gathered together. So the church is now together. Where are they? They're in the air forever to be with the Lord. Notice he has not spoken anything about the battle of Armageddon. He hasn't said anything about coming back to earth and defeating sin. He simply says, you're going to be together with the Lord, and thus we shall always be with the Lord, and therefore comfort one another with these words. What comfort would it be if you were to gather together with the Lord and then immediately begin to fight the battle of Armageddon or go through the tribulation? That is a hard question for anyone to answer. During the tribulation, chapter 6 to 19, that we'll cover as we go through this, you're going to see that the Lord is trying to draw national Israel together. There was a promise made that Paul repeats in Romans chapter 11. He speaks those things very, very, very clearly. And he says there in chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, the mystery of the gospel, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, notice this, the fullness of the Gentiles has come. The end of the church age, the last bit of God's dealing with the Gentile world. And that is what we are. We're not national Israel. I, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm a Gentile believer, and so are almost all of you. There may be some tonight that are actually Hebrew believers. You're completed. I love that term. How awesome is it to be a Jewish believer in Messiah? Because you have the best of both worlds. You have the promises of the covenant, and you also have new life in Christ. That is a, that's a double dip. That's not even fair. <laughs> Until that fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so, verse 26 says, all Israel will be saved as it is written. And notice why that is true. 
For the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, not with the church, with Israel. I will take away their sins. How are all sins taken away? Nothing but the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so this is a picture of Israel coming to faith in Messiah. That happens because the time of the Gentiles came to an end. And so I believe this points towards the church being taken away off of this earth. And you will notice that the church is not mentioned on the earth for the next 16 chapters. There's no mention whatsoever. None. Jesus himself will not speak again except for one verse until the end of the book of Revelation. And so John is now getting this vision that he's now been transported to heaven. He sees heaven, and heaven is downloading to John. This is like in the Mission Impossible series where, you know, you have the little chip and you put it in. It's like all the information goes and just downloads the whole thing. John's getting the full download now. And so we have three basic views of this event. The first one, which is the view that I hold to, the view this church holds to, the view that I believe best explains what Scripture clearly says is going to happen, that the church is going to be caught up those that are alive and remain at that time will be snatched away. Uh, my little diagram here helps you to understand that. So you have uh, the Old Testament times. You have the church age, which we just looked at in the seven uh, churches. At some point in time prior to the tribulation, that final week of Daniel's prophecy, the church is snatched away. And there are a couple of things that go on in that period of time. You have the Gog, Magog campaign to where Russia and its allies aligned with the Arab nations that are listed there in Ezekiel 38 and 39 come against national Israel. And as they come against national Israel, they, it looks like they're going to win. And one of the reasons that that looks like it's going to be in place is the Antichrist will have risen, and as he rises, the first thing he does for the first three and a half years is he creates a peace treaty with national Israel. He creates economic prosperity for the entire world. He develops a one-world monetary system, a one-world religion, and a one-world government. And so as he does that, that first three and a half years looks like it's going to be a time of peace. And then all of the stuff that is going to unfold in the next 16 chapters comes about. The Antichrist rises and then literally all hell breaks loose on earth. The church is snatched away. And during that period of time, God pours out his wrath on the earth. Following that, the Lord returns, that second coming, that down arrow that you see there. And then a thousand years of the Lord ruling and reigning with his saints here on this earth. It's the first view. The easiest to understand as far as I am concerned. The next view, which is a little different, and it, and it really is fairly easy to see. It's known as the pre-wrath view. Uh, basically because of what I just explained to you, that the Antichrist will rise. He'll be a man of peace initially. And so as he's a man of peace, he comes to the world kind of with a peace treaty. And he says, look, I'm a good guy. When the Antichrist rises, many people think, you know, he's going to be like the epitome of looking like the devil that most people have in cartoons. He's not. He is going to be suave. He will be debonair. He will absolutely wear Armani and Gucci and... He, he'll be carrying a wad of cash in his pocket. He'll have some serious bling. He'll be driving all the best cars. And he will be well-spoken, extremely well-liked. People will fall in love with the Antichrist because they will be deceived. Because the Holy Spirit has now been pulled out of the world because the Holy Spirit resides in the church. Amen? So if the Holy Spirit is in the church and the church is no longer here going to be pretty easy to deceive the world with world peace. Does not the world ache for peace right now? And so in this view, what happens is that peace treaty comes about, and then all hell breaks loose on earth. And so before the really bad stuff happens, before what they would like to call the wrath of God occurs, 
But if you remember correctly, it's going to be kind of tough to buy and sell during that period of time. And we'll get to all this as we study through these next 16 chapters. You're going to need to take the mark of the beast. You're going to have to buy into the system. And so this view says, then the church will be snatched out three and a half years into the tribulation, then the second coming of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon, all those things, then a thousand year reign of Christ. The third view, which is the post-tribulational view, uh, to me is the one that absolutely makes zero sense. I call it the yo-yo view. Because it assumes all of those things to be true. You're still going to have the battle of Gog and Magog, that campaign that could well last years. We're not actually told when it starts, when it ends. We just know that the church is raptured and taken off of the earth. But during that time of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, when God is pouring out his wrath on this earth, they believe that Christians are still going to be there. And the chief reason that they believe it is because we deserve it. And that is true. I do deserve the wrath of God, but I'm pretty sure my Bible says I've been saved from it. So again, remember why we believe this literal interpretation of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. Let us, there, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, it says in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 5. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober. That means to be wide-eyed, awake, and alert. Sober. You know, kind of like you've been driving at night and, and you're, you kind of doze a little bit and you swerve towards the center divider. You remember how awake you are when that happens? It's like, oh, dear Jesus, I almost died. And your eyes get like this big and like for the rest of the drive, you're like, okay, I'm awake now. <laughs> sober, awake. Let those of us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. You see, I'm girding my mind up for the truth. And the truth is, here it comes, for God did not appoint us to wrath. The whole purpose of the tribulation is God's wrath poured out on unbelievers on this earth. So why would God save us from wrath and then make us go through it? That makes no sense whatsoever. Just plainly interpreting Scripture but to obtain, notice this, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Makes a distinction between the pouring out of the wrath and the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. It's a very clear distinction. Who died for us? That whether we wake or sleep, that we should live together with him. You see, his point is, I didn't appoint you to go through that wrath. That wrath is for unbelievers to go through because they have rejected Jesus Christ. They refuse to turn from their sin. And the way that Joel describes what the world has done to national Israel, which they continue to do today with the help of our own government. The reason this treaty that we just signed with Iran is so reprehensible is because it puts at risk God's people, Israel. And you are either for God or you're against God. And God says, I will bless those who bless you. And he's speaking of Israel. He still has a plan for the nation Israel. The whole world, whether it believes it or not, waits tonight for what happens to national Israel. And so he says, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. He's saying, look, I haven't appointed you to wrath. When the bad stuff comes, you're going to be gone. And so that third rapture view makes no sense that we're going to go through the very thing that he saved us from. You have been saved from the wrath of God by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. The final view and it isn't a rapture view, it's a no rapture view. Whenever you see uh, the prefix a, that means not. And so ah millennialism means no millennium. There will not be a millennial reign of Christ. So that literal reign of Christ that we'll see as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, those who hold this view believe that will not ever happen. 
that it in fact is actually going on now, spiritually speaking, in the hearts and the minds of every believer, in the lives of the church today, and that the wrath that's been poured out is things like the Holocaust and, and the Armenian Genocide and all of those things that we've seen, wars, when, the, when Jesus spoke of wars and rumors of wars, he was talking about the wars that have already happened. And so you have to not interpret literally Scripture, because Scripture is very clear that these things that will occur in the very last days will have never been seen before, nor will they ever happen again. And so again, those who hold this view believe that there is simply going to be the next event on God's timeline is the return of Christ. And that second coming will unleash these things on the earth. The earth will be cleansed and then there will be the, the in essence, the eternal state will then come. And so those views, now the reason that I've really told you all these things is quite clear. We're at the end of the church age. Something big is on the horizon. And that something big is the trumpet of God that one day is going to sound. And I believe will snatch away the church uh, by force from this earth. And I want to get to that uh, in our remaining time. You see, as we think on these things, you can see some of the highlights of this chapter because it's very, very sovereignty-centric. Rapture of the church, God's throne, the approaching storm of God's wrath. We're going to see the four living creatures, the 24 elders. All these crazy things are coming. This is, this is an absolutely, unbelievably exciting book because it causes us to think about where we are today on this grand timeline. And every time the world sticks a finger in the eye of national Israel, we're getting closer and closer and closer. And I'll encourage you to read Ezekiel 38 and 39 over these next couple of weeks, and you, you read that for yourself, and then realize that list of nations is all predominantly Arab nations. They are all aligned together today. Every last one of them has a vested interest in the erasure of the Jewish people from the face of the earth, and they are being absolutely aided by two nations, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and Russia, Gog. And so as we look at this going forward, where are we? I'm going to give you a little bit of a history here. One of the most common early church Beginning back in about 400 A.D., the church began to search the scriptures, and what they came up with was what we call the 7,000-year theory. It's one of the oldest theories dating the earliest parts of the church. Uh, the, the Jewish people believed, and we believe as Bible-believing Christians, and whether you believe in the gap theory that there were six literal days and then billions of years, or whether you believe in punctuated you know, time or whatever, we, we almost all agree that God literally... Uh, formed the universe and everything in it in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. And so there is an equivalence here, and it speaks of a couple of passages put into practice over a long period of time. Second Peter chapter uh, three verse eight says that one day is as a thousand years unto the Lord. Amen. So you take that. Uh, Hebrews chapter four verses four through eleven presents the millennial reign of Christ as a day of rest. And when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, we'll have a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So when you look at that, that type of uh, understanding, if God created the world in six days, and we believe that he will also deal with the world for six days. Now, this is a theory. Pastor Jeff is not telling you that he heard from the Lord. But it is an interesting, nonetheless, theory. Almost four of God's days have been taken up in, taken up in the church age or two, two of them in the church age, and almost four of them in the preceding history that involved the Jewish people up until the time uh, of, the, of the Jewish nation being founded again in 1948. And so you have 6,000 years. That only leaves us a very, very tiny period of time, perhaps as little as 70 to 80 years is all that's left for us to be able to say, well, God dealt with the world for 6,000 years and then a year of rest. So all of the stuff 
that we're now going to look at kind of gets crammed in to the remaining part of that particular theory. So something to think about. The bottom line is we're close. We don't know exactly when these things are going to transpire, but if the Bible rightly can be discerned to, to believe that from the Lord's perspective, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, could be that we're awfully close because we've just about wiped out 6,000 years of human history. And the Lord hasn't come back yet for his church. Feast on that for a little while. You see, as you think on these things, we have to be really careful to blow these things up too far because I think people get in trouble when they do that. But it is interesting that the Lord keeps us thinking about the imminent return of the Lord. That it could be tonight. Might be before you get home. And so verse 1, after this I looked and there was a door before me standing open in heaven. So where is that door? In heaven. Where is John's body? It's on earth. So he's seeing into the heavens spiritually. He's transported there. He looked and he heard. So he is not only seeing it, but he's hearing the voice. So John gets a preview of exactly what we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We who are alive and remain would meet him in the air. He went in the spirit to the air. This was not something he saw on earth. He was transported to heaven. So it is a type, if you will, of the rapture of the church. He's saying, basically, come on up here. He looked, he heard. And as you read these passages that point us towards this time when the church will be snatched away, the immediate thing that a lot of people will say is, well, you know the word rapture is not in your Bible. That is absolutely true. The word rapture is not in your Bible because it's not an English word. The word rapture comes from a Latin word, raptura, which is a transliteration of a Greek word, harpazo. And those words, when you look at them, they are linguistically absolutely correct that to be snatched away by force is to be raptured. That is an absolute correct rendering of the original Greek. But it went from Greek to Latin, to English. And that's why you don't see it, because it's a Latin word. It's very simple to understand. And people say, well, you know, I don't think I can believe that. Well, if you don't believe that, let me give you a little problem for you to work out. Um, then why do you believe that we should call God, God? His name is actually YHVH, if you want to look at it in the original Hebrew. We actually try and spell it out Yahweh, but we call him God. So, his name really isn't God. He said, I am that I am is my name. Jesus actually isn't Jesus either. His name is actually Yahushua or Yahshua. It's transliterated. And in that transliteration, we get Jesus or Jesus. It's the same name. It means God is our salvation. And so before you get too far off and people complain and whine about using the word rapture, you're right, the word rapture isn't in there. But neither actually is God or Jesus. So if you use God for God's name and you use Jesus for Jesus' name, you have the same problem as speaking about the rapture of the church. It's simply a transliterary issue where you're taking from one language to another. So from Greek to Latin to English. The word that's used there means to be caught up, snatched away by force. Drawn up. The human author of the book of Revelation is now speaking about things that he saw in heaven. And there are several. Enoch was a type. He was snatched away. Uh, Elijah was snatched away. Uh, Jesus himself was taken up into heaven. The Apostle Paul taken up into heaven. Uh, John now is taken up into heaven. So there have been pictures of this event throughout the church's history on this earth and throughout the history of even ancient Israel. And so there are four doors that were opened in heaven. Now John is standing before that one door. He's looking and, and we see him staring into heaven and he gets these, these highlights, if you will, of what, it's, what it looks like there. And again, when you're trying to describe God, because no man can see God and live, amen? If you were, that's why Moses saw his back. 
He never saw the full face of God. He saw the back of God, the shadow of God, if you will, because you can't see God and live. And so John, looking into heaven, gets a partial glimpse of these things. And so he says, look, here it is, these doors of opportunity uh, that are here. Uh, We saw one back in chapter 3. We see one here uh, in chapter 4. There was another in chapter 3, that door of the the human heart, the door of, of, of opportunity, as we also call it. And then there's going to be one when we get to chapter, chapter 19. And so God is opening heaven's door to see things that we can't uh, even imagine. And so you would imagine them to be something that we would have a tough time describing. And so as he says, look, these are things that must, must take place after this. It's because he's going to now describe three consecutive sets of seven judgments that are going to fall on the earth. And he's going to begin with the seven seals. They, they occur in chapter 6. They'll be followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls as God pours out his wrath on the earth. And so the trumpet of God, as he looks into heaven, is giving him the confidence that these came, things came actually from the mouth of God. He says, look, I'm telling you these things. They're from me. I have all of this under control. When we look at the world tonight, many people, especially those who don't know the Lord, look at the world and it almost seems like, well, that's a case for there not being a God. I mean, it's a mess, amen? But can I tell you that God has it absolutely under control? We may not understand how he has it under control, but he has it absolutely under control. And he opens doors, he closes doors. And when he opens them, no one can shut them. And when he shuts them, no one can open them. We've already seen that. That door to heaven is about to open for the church. And it's going to be closed to those who are on the earth. The age of grace is going to end. That door of opportunity that is now open in grace is going to be a very different thing during the tribulation. It will cost you your life. It will cost you your head. It will cost you everything. There will be people who get saved during that period of time. We know them and we'll see them as tribulation saints. National Israel will become saved. That doesn't mean every Jewish person. It doesn't mean every Israel. It means like we are, America's called a Christian nation. It's in that vein. People will largely, as the Jewish people, see Messiah. They will mourn the one whom they have pierced, and boom, it was him. That door that's easy right now because to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. Amen? That's an easy thing to do. If you're here tonight, that's what it takes to be saved. It means to acknowledge your own sin. It means to put your faith and trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins on Calvary's cross. He has paid the price for them. He has placed righteousness, his own righteousness, in your account. And because you have believed in his name, you will be saved. You will go to heaven. That's easy tonight. But imagine when the whole world is ruled by people who do not believe. They will be rejoicing that the church is gone. Is not the world right now even saying, man, just get rid of Christians. They are the problem. I think they're going to rejoice. You know, there's been lots of books written, and I don't want to go into the speculation. But whether they believe we all got zapped away by an alien abduction, or whether there was, you know, the black plague and it only affected Christians, I don't know. But I know this, we're going to be gone, they're going to be here, and it ain't going to be easy to find Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is in you. Holy Spirit will still be in the world in that sense, still available to those who seek, but no longer with a common voice. You're not going to be able to walk up and tell somebody about the glories of God. You're not going to be able to convince them of the truth of the gospel with the word of your mouth because you'll be killed for doing those kind of things. You see, he's off on a voyage. He's having a vision. As we look at the remaining structure we can actually see chapter 4 being the transition for the things which are to the things which will take place after this. This is the transitional point. 
John first is going to present the church in heaven. We're going to see the 24 elders. We're going to see the church alive and well in heaven. We're going to then see the tribulation, chapter 6 to chapter 18. We're then going to see the second coming of the Lord, then the millennial reign of Christ, and finally the new heaven and the new earth. But before all of that happens, the church is gone. The church disappears, and we will not be mentioned again until the very, very end of the book. And so he looks into the throne room of God and sees this incredible picture. Now remember that we earlier saw the Lord walking among the candlesticks. Amen? Okay, if the candlesticks are in heaven, then you would not expect the Lord to be walking among the candlesticks unless the candlesticks are in heaven. And so the candlesticks are in heaven. The elders are in heaven. The pastors of the churches finally finished the race. They've run the course. They've received that reward. They've entered in, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we now will shift gears to begin to tell us about what's going to happen. And in order to do that, he says, look, I saw this one on the throne that looked like the absolute most pure light that I've ever seen. Strangely and oddly enough, when you talk to most people about out-of-body experiences, if they claim to have gone to heaven, that is the single most common comment they have, that it was bright white. The other thing that he says is, look, I see one who is a red light, a carnelian light, and of course that represents to us the blood of Christ, which has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. As Isaiah said, though my sins be as scarlet, you will wash them and make them white as wool. It's the picture of the one who's on the throne. And oddly enough, He gives us a picture of the Alpha and the Omega, the first of the stones in the breastplate and the last of the stones in the breastplate. That was the picture of the progression of the children of Israel. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Jesus said, look, that's how it is in heaven. I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, you'll all be there. To as many as believed in him, to them, he will give the ability to become the sons of God. And so he says, before that happens, before I begin to deal with the world for what it's done, before that age of grace comes to a close, right at that end, I'm going to take my church home. Family of God, you may not make it home. We used to have, I remember back in the late 60s, early 70s, my church, we had a, everybody. You know, if you were in the youth group, we all had 1 Corinthians 15 t-shirts, and it showed these shoes that were like in the middle of the t-shirt, and like the clothes were falling off on the other end, and it was, it was rapture ready, you know. We were like waiting. Well, that was a while ago. But I know this. We're closer tonight than we were then, and we were close then. So I don't know when that trumpet's going to sound. I don't know when the dead in Christ are going to rise. I don't know when that time is that we who are alive and remain are going to meet him in the air. But I know it's going to be sooner than you think. And I just simply ask you the question. Are you ready? Are, are you rapture ready? I have to look at it like this. You know, when you in the old days, remember you used to actually get tickets when you flew somewhere. Now it's all e-tickets. You don't get anything. You just wave your smartphone. Seriously, I just take out my smartphone. It's like, here's my ticket. But in the old days, they actually sent you a folio, you know? You remember those things? You actually got a ticket folio, and in it was an actual hard ticket. And, and what everybody did is you took those tickets, and they usually were on the refrigerator or something. You could stare at them. You're like, man, I'm leaving tomorrow on a jet plane. It's a John Denver song, by the way. Shows you how old I am. Yeah, I'm going to be on that plane. I'm going to be flying to here or going to there. There was the vacation tickets right there on the fridge. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Is your vacation ticket validated for heaven? Because if it's not, you need to square that away before you leave tonight. Because if you don't know him, you're going to be here for the things that are coming in the book of Revelation. And you don't want to be here for that. 
It's just not a pretty sight. But God says what he means and means what he says. Good news is, all you have to do is ask him into your heart and you'll be saved. And then you can start living for him. So we're going to have the worship team come back up. And I want to pray. We've got some prayer warriors available for you. Please, in Jesus' name, there are going to be people up here. You can pray with them. And you tonight can get that squared away to where your ticket's punched. It's ready. Please don't leave this place without it. Okay? And so if that's you, Christ is calling. The door is open. And he's inviting you tonight to give your life to Christ. Because tomorrow is promised to no man. Your destiny is secure in him. It is absolutely insecure in the world. Do not leave without knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, tonight I believe there are are people here tonight that do not know you. They may have even in their own hearts even shunned this message. That's hogwash. It's foolishness. But your word actually says the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing. It seems crazy that the creator God of the universe would come to this earth and die for sinful mankind that through his death our sins would be wiped away and we would be saved. But that is the gospel. And so, Lord, I want to pray tonight that there's anybody here that you would just, right now, by your spirit, speak to them. They would come forward. They would bow their heart before you and pray to receive Christ. Father, we thank you for the promise of the rapture of the church. Lord, we can't wait to leave but we also know we have work to do before we go. So make us ready, Lord, for that time when the trumpet sounds, when we, we who are alive and are still on this earth rise up to meet you in the air. God, we do find comfort. We do find hope in that promise. And so tonight, we bless you for rescuing us, God. You rescued us. You saved us. Save tonight the lost, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's you and you need Jesus. We're going to be down here waiting for you. Come and be prayed for. Come and give your life to Christ. The rest of you, go get busy about your Father's business. Amen? Amen. Amen.